You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we catch up with the latest military news from Ukraine. Then Peru's president has been impeached and arrested after he tried to dissolve Congress. We'll get the details. We'll be looking further into the Trump organization's criminal charges and checking in with our team in Dhaka. And we'll flick through the papers, get up to speed on the art world happenings. And finally... We're selecting films from all over Southeast Asia that have, in general, they've made their premieres in Toronto and Cannes and been in, you know, Locarno and all over the world and Tokyo. And they're coming back home to Southeast Asia. We head to a film festival that takes place in a city with no movie theatres. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The German Chancellor says the risk of Vladimir Putin using nuclear weapons in Ukraine has decreased due to international pressure. Google says North Korean government-backed hackers used the Seoul Halloween crush to distribute malware in South Korea. And the New York Times is bracing for a mass employee walkout today, the first strike of its kind in more than 40 years at the newspaper. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, following Monday's attacks on two military air bases deep within Russia, an oil storage tank at a Russian airfield in Kursk was set on fire on Tuesday. This is believed to have been a drone attack. Meanwhile, possibly in retaliation for the earlier attacks, Russian missiles have hit the Kherson region multiple times. This comes as reports indicate that Russia is running out of Iranian-made drones and hasn't yet been able to source ballistic missiles from the country. Well, Jenny Mathers is a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University and joins me now. Jenny, thanks for coming on the show. What do we know about this third attack on an airfield? Well, it's very much in line with the pattern of attacks behind the Russian lines that we've seen in the recent weeks and, and months. Um, it is not been claimed by Ukraine. Ukraine is being very cagey about these kinds of attacks. But it seems pretty clear that Ukraine uh, is responsible for them. And it indicates both a greater ability, technical ability, to strike behind enemy lines uh, within Russian territory itself, um, but also a greater boldness on the part of the Ukrainians. They're clearly not regarding this set, onset of winter as an opportunity to sit back and, and take a rest. You know, they're pressing on, they're trying to uh, take advantage of, of everything they can and trying to really keep the pressure on Russia. The US Secretary of State was asked about America helping Ukraine to hit targets within Russia. He was very non-committal. I wonder if you could sort of unpack what he said, or rather more importantly, what, what he meant. Yes, I mean, the, the US is is walking a, a quite a tricky line at the moment. On the one hand, they definitely want to continue supporting Ukraine, make it clear that they are firmly in Ukraine on Ukraine's side, and they're providing military assistance of a whole wide range of, of different kinds, economic assistance, diplomatic support, and, and so on. Um, on the other hand, though, they don't want to be seen to be 
promoting or encouraging or enabling Ukraine to actually attack targets within Russia itself, because the Biden administration regards this as a, an escalating step. It regards it as a step that might be uh, too um, too dangerous, too threatening to Russia and might um, provoke more, even more deadly retaliation, possibly even, you know, moving on to, to weapons of mass destruction. So, so the Biden administration wants to make it clear that they are not enabling or encouraging the Ukrainians to take this step, but at the same time, make it clear that they're supporting the Ukrainians. So it's quite a, a tricky line for them to, to keep walking. I mean, because some media outlets are reporting that the US had secretly modified the rocket launchers it gave to Ukraine, so they couldn't be used to fire long range missiles into Russia. I mean, do we know if that's the case? I think that's that's certainly been been alleged, um, and it would be plausible considering the the American administration's concerns about what would happen if, um, you know, if if American supplied weapons were used to attack Russian territory. So it's plausible, but we don't know for certain uh, whether this has actually happened. But it does indicate the the fact that, that it's being talked about does indicate the depth of American concerns about how this conflict might develop uh, in various ways if. Uh, Moscow feels that Russian territory is going to be, you know, persistently under attack. Now, there are also conflicting reports about Iranian drones, with some claiming that Russia's running out and others saying that it isn't so. And yet another source has said Iran has shared the technology for Russia to make the drones internally. Do we have clarity on this? Well, as as you've indicated, this is sort of the range of, of reports that we're getting. I mean, the, the Russians were reported to have purchased around two and a half thousand Iranian drones. And at the rate at which they were using them against targets in Ukraine, civilian targets in Ukraine, it's pretty clear that they must be coming close to the end of that supply if they haven't already reached it. And it's also been reported that uh, the, the Iranians have given uh, or or included in the technology transfer um, the technology which Russia would be able to, to use to make its own drones. Now, we haven't yet seen Russian-made Iranian-style drones being used in Ukraine, as far as I'm aware, but that's something which might possibly come down the line, depending upon exactly what the Russians would need in order to to make these drones and whether the Iranian technology is sufficient, given all of the other economic sanctions that are hitting uh, the Russian defense industry. Um, So yeah, I mean, it it certainly looks as though from all directions, Russia is under a lot of pressure in terms of the amount of of weaponry that it's using up in terms of where it can go for international supplies and international support, um, and exactly how it's going to continue to maintain its momentum of uh, attacks on civilian targets in Ukraine. We're also told that Russia's asked Iran for ballistic missiles, uh, but that that hasn't happened. I mean, if this is the case, uh, could Iran be nervous of getting involved further in the war? Or is it just so riven with its own internal problems right now that that supplying uh, Russia with ballistic missiles is pretty low down on the list of priorities? Yes, Iran clearly has a lot of other things uh, to deal with at home. Uh, And uh, as you say, technology transfer and weapons transfer is maybe not at the top of their list at the moment. And certainly Iran will have been coming under a lot of diplomatic pressure to reduce or eliminate its support for uh, Russia in this area. And so it's juggling a lot of different things. And chances are this new request for ballistic missiles will go down the priority list, will go on the back burner for a while and may not even be addressed at all. Uh, So Iran itself has to weigh up the consequences of its continuing involvement in this war and whether or not actually it's it's worthwhile. Well, somebody else who's weighing up the consequences is Lukashenko in in Belarus. 
uh, of course, Belarus is Russia's ally. Uh, they said yesterday that they're moving troops and military hardware to counteract what they called a threat of terrorism. So are these troops moving towards the border with Ukraine? And does this mean that Lukashenko has decided to commit troops to Russia's war? I think it's clear that Belarusian troops and Russian troops have been moving towards the the shared border between Belarus and Ukraine for a little while now. Uh, back in October, Lukashenko announced that there would be a, a sort of a fresh contingent of of, trus- of Russian troops moving into to Belarus near the border. Um, so I think there's a number of things happening here. Firstly, Lukashenko is clearly in the in a subordinate position to Russia. Um, Lukashenko owes a lot to Moscow in terms of Moscow's support for his Lukashenko's continuing occupancy of the presidency after the very controversial presidential elections in August of 2020. So Lukashenko is beholden to Moscow. On the other hand, in this in the context of this current um, conflict in, in Ukraine and all of the economic sanctions that are are coming Russia's way and and all of the uh, diplomatic isolation, which is increasingly being aimed not only at, at Russia but also at Belarus as a close ally, Lukashenko has been trying to distance himself just that little bit from Moscow and try and keep options open um, because, uh, you know, the more he's allied with with Moscow, the fewer options he has to create uh, wider sets of, of diplomatic links. And in the past, he's been really keen to do that, to, to uh, sort of diversify his diplomatic options. Um, Lukashenko probably doesn't want to send Belarusian troops into Ukraine uh, because the armed forces in Belarus is a conscript army. It's not like the security forces, which are professionalized, which are highly loyal to Lukashenko and his regime. Um, the army is made up of the people, and the people are very much, um, you know, not necessarily behind Lukashenko, and certainly not behind uh, Belarusian involvement in the war. So he'd be taking a really big risk if he did this. But the fact that that all the signaling is happening about troops moving and and rhetoric, um, you know, flying around. It, it It's a way of putting pressure on the Ukrainians. It's a way of, of ensuring that Ukraine has to divide its attention between where the hot war is waging in the south and in the east and where threats might be building up to, you know, to the northern part of the country and especially to the capital from the uh, from the border with Belarus. So Ukraine has to divide its attention, uh, put more forces and more fortifications uh, towards the north when really it, it could use them uh, in the south and in the east. And of course, it's still coming under attack. What can you tell us about the strikes on Kherson? We, we understand the area was hit over 50 times. Would that be in retaliation for the airfield strikes? Well, potentially, but not necessarily only in retaliation for the airfield strikes. I mean, what we've seen is that uh, when Russia cannot make militarily significant gains on the battlefield, it tends to turn to attacking civilian targets and civilian infrastructure. And we've seen this for you know months now. Is you know this is the way that that Russia is able to uh, you know hurt Ukraine and Ukrainians, the way to cause damage, punish them, try to intimidate them. Uh, try to force them into coming to the negotiating table and making concessions. So this is part of a longer pattern. And certainly, yes, any any aggression, uh, as Russia would re- would regard it by the part of Ukraine onto Russian territory, uh, will be retaliated against. But it's not only about that. It's a it's a bigger picture of a of a longer term strategy on Russia's part to to really punish uh, Ukrainian civilians. Uh, and just given everything that you've said, do you think that the balance of power is shifting? I think definitely the momentum of the war uh, is with the Ukrainians. You know, they are making militarily significant strikes and, and actions. Uh, they're taking back territory. They're they're damaging Russia's capacity to wage the war. It's clear that, you know, the, the 
um, limited mobilization that Putin announced in September has not been a huge success. It hasn't turned the tide for Russia, and it may not, you know, even in the coming months. Um, and it's also clear that, you know, Russia is increasingly diplomatically isolated. Even countries like Belarus, like countries in Central Asia, which have traditionally allied themselves with Russia, are showing a willingness to step away a little bit, are showing that much, that little bit less respect to Putin personally. Um, so, yeah, I would say definitely uh, the, the power is shifting and it's shifting away from Moscow. Jenny, thank you very much indeed. That's Jenny Mathers there. It is 13 minutes past two in Lima, and that's 7.13 here in London. Pedro Castillo, the president of Peru, was ousted yesterday and subsequently arrested after he tried to dissolve Congress. Vice President Dina Bulate was sworn in as Peru's first female president. She's the fifth person to take up the office in a little over two years. Well, I'm joined now by Natalia Sobrevia Perea. She's a professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. Natalia, good morning to you and thanks for, for joining us. Can you talk us through what happened? Because yesterday morning, Castillo was president by the afternoon by the evening he was he was uh, in jail it took 19 minutes for the regime to change it was a swift and surprising as can be the, in the morning there had been uh, the proceedings for another impeachment attempt against castillo there was this is this was the fifth attempt by congress to impeach him and he decided to act before congress taking a risk of um, trying to close Congress to prevent his impeachment. He thought he would have some support. Nobody really understands why, because the army and the police had very clearly given um, the, the, the feeling that they had would not be supporting him. And it was a, a question of him leaving, trying to do something to, to achieve the dissolution of Congress. This was not uh, possible. Then he tried to, to flee, possibly to take a political asylum in the Mexican embassy. He failed. He was caught in the middle of traffic in the city of Lima by the police and subsequently put in jail. Congress then decided to have the impeachment vote. It seemed in the morning that they would have not had enough votes to impeach him. But by the afternoon, it was very clear that he had no chance. 101 Congress uh, members voted for his impeachment. He was thrown out. And very swiftly, his vice president, Dina Boluarte, was sworn in. He looked like a very different type of leader when he came in. He wasn't from the political establishment. Can you just tell us a little bit a, a, about him? Well, Pedro Castillo is a trade unionist. He's uh, from the teachers' the teachers uh, union. He comes from a very small town in the in the highlands. No political, no real political experience. And the thing that he showed from day one in office is that he really was out of his depth. He didn't understand the way politics worked. He didn't surround himself by people that had a, a lot of um, acumen, political acumen. But there were many people who never accepted him as having legitimately been elected. So there was a combination. He then was... Um, unable to make anything of the political capital that he had when he arrived into office. 
and very quickly alienated anybody who tried to help him. The left had, had tried to prop up his government at the at the beginning, but that that was just not possible. He's been accused of um, embezzlement and uh, political um, abuse. Nothing too different than previous presidents of Peru, but it's very sad to see how he was he squandered any type of political capital he had when he reached the presidency in July 2021. He was only in office for 17 months. Do you think his tenure has done lasting damage to the country? Well, I don't think that there is much difference between what he's done or what happened during his tenure than what have happened before. Remember that you said five Peruvian presidents in a very short span of time. Now, many argue that this is worse than what came before, that he has done lasting damage, but I really, I really do wonder if the damage has not already been done to the political system. And it, it is an open question of whether anybody who follows can make changes. Of course, it didn't help that he had no political ability past the fact that he had no political experience. And we just have to wait and see if the woman who will be Peru's first uh, female president is able to to do anything about this. I mean, what kind of leader do you think she'll make? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of talk of how she's been trying to build some consensus around a possible presidency from the very beginning, because as uh, I've mentioned, this is the fifth uh, attempt to impeach him. There's been uh, a very long uh, desire to rid ourselves or the country to rid itself from Castillo as president. So she has had time to talk with different sectors in politics and we can only hope that she's able to find some consensus and some possibility to govern the country which as i say has for a very long time been in in very difficult political situation and finally natalia i mean what do you think is next for the country and how will this impact on the region well the question remains will she try to call for early elections uh, elections that would have uh, a new would see a new Congress elected and, and, and a new president elected. Will she see this as a temporary um, time in office? Will she be able to have enough political support, build or rebuild a position to from which to govern, or will this be another uh, move in towards instability? That is what remains to be seen, and we can only hope that she finds some stability and some space to govern. An open question of whether she will need to call for an early election or not. Otherwise, she will have she will technically have to stay until 2026. Natalie, Natalia, thank you very much indeed. That's Natalia Sobravia Perea speaking to us there. Now, still to come on the programme, we head to a film festival that takes place in a city with no cinemas. We're selecting films from all over Southeast Asia that have, in general, they've made their premieres in Toronto and Cannes and been in, you know, Locarno and all over the world and Tokyo. And they're coming back home to Southeast Asia. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com.
Trump Organization has been found guilty of criminal tax fraud. After a six-week tr- six trial and two days of deliberations, the jury convicted the company in a case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney. The former president was not personally on trial and lawyers for the defence said the crime was solely down to the greed of longtime chief financial officer Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg accepted a plea deal earlier this year admitting fraud in exchange for a five-month prison sentence and the company could pay a fine of up to $1.6 million. Well, I'm joined now by Julie Norman, who's co-director of the UCL Centre on Politics. Uh, Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Can you tell us what is the Trump Organisation? What business is it involved in? And is it 100% owned by the Trumps? Yeah, so the Trump Organization is uh, is run by the Trump family and is mostly their real estate dealings. So it's one of their largest organizations, and it's why it's so notable about uh, about this case, which again, importantly, did not directly implicate Trump or his family members. But there was a sense of um, drawing on Trump's name a lot in the trial by the prosecution, saying that he probably was very much aware of a lot of the uh, the fraud that was taking place. So um, so this was something that seems to stretch around the company, even though, again, the case was much more specific to individuals. But they do, the Trump family do own the company completely. Yes, I believe they do. So what's the detail then of this 15 years, it looks like, of fraud? So this is, again, what was seen as a longstanding uh, um, scheme, if you will, that was really two parts, um, defrauding tax authorities on the one hand and failing to report and pay taxes on the other. And so what this pretty much meant was uh, many individuals within the company, key executives, were just getting all kinds of perks from uh, you know, apartments in Manhattan to cars to uh, private school tuition for, for kids and grandkids. So all these things were doled out um, in uh, kind of perks and under the table so that they weren't uh, actually taxed. And so this is what most of the case was focusing on. Um, The sentencing is only probably a fine of about $1.5 million, which is nothing for an organization like this. But but it is uh, is notable that again, that the guilty verdict was there at all. And I think just, you know, is, is an important point in kind of this larger swirl of legal uh, um, cases that we see swirling around Trump. There is a civil case right now in Manhattan that is directly implicating Trump and his family members that is ongoing. So it looks like they, they got the chief financial officer to take the fool for this. What was Weisselberg's role? Yeah, so Weisselberg essentially said that um, he, this was back in August, he took a fall saying that he was um, the, the the one individual really who was uh, personally uh, benefiting from this, that it was, uh, you know, him that was, was involved in this. And so that was what allowed the case to really move forward around him. Um, and again, this is one reason why the Trump uh, organization is kind of defending themselves as saying, well, why should we be uh, seen as guilty when it's really just centering around um, around one individual? So that's that's kind of the back and forth on it right now. But his testimony and his plea deal back in August was really what enabled this one to go forward. And and in the trial itself, the jury kept going back to various bits of evidence. I mean, they seemed very interested in in certain parts of the trial. What stood out for you? Yeah. Um, so they, they, for me, the, the jury didn't deliberate for all that long. I think this seemed pretty, pretty key to them. Again, um, Weiselberg's testimony ended up being, I think, the key part. Um, and the jury, uh, you know, for them, I think it was trying to kind of read this larger writing on the wall. Again, the prosecution did have a large uh 
you know, kind of a large narrative saying that this was, again, over a decade long, that many in the Trump organization knew about it. Uh, and I think they were able to just tell this larger story pretty well. Mm. How has the company, the Trump organization, reacted? Yes. So they've said that they will appeal. Um, Trump himself has, as usual, called this a uh, politically motivated witch hunt. Um, He has said that uh, you know, that, that New York is not a safe place to be a Trump anymore. So in the way he normally does, he's trying to play it to his advantage with some of his base by looking at this as a, uh, you know, kind of a government attack, a government probe into um, a private business and whatnot, and also trying to smear him and his company through um, what they're trying to frame as the dealings of just one uh, one individual. So that's what they're coming back at. They will appeal it. Um, but again, I think this is, you know, again, just one, one point, kind of a larger story around uh, uh, Trump's legal problems. And sentencing takes place in January. Is it likely just to be that small fine? And could it affect the long-term prospects of the business? Yeah. So right now, so the fine is, um, it's strikingly minimal around that, that um, about 1.3 million pounds. So in, in, uh, in, in British pounds. Um, but in, 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 interestingly, in New York, it doesn't actually stop the company from uh, from operating either. But it does. It, what many are saying is it may make it more difficult for them to get financing in the future, to get loans in the future. So it may make their operations more difficult. Though again, my guess is if this goes through a whole appeals process, some of the effects would uh, be much later down the road. So it's a bit of a, a slap on the wrist, if you will. But I'd say symbolically, the verdict is uh, is telling and notable. Mm. Now, as we know, Trump himself has not been directly accused of this crime. And you, you, you mentioned other uh, cases that he is involved in. Uh, just, just run us through those because there are many, many legal challenges that he's facing at the moment. There are there are several more in New York. Um, a probe uh, by the um, New York um, Attorney General, and then also within Manhattan, that are again looking at these business dealings and looking at Trump's role in particular within them. Uh, there's obviously the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which is ongoing. Um, just uh, yesterday, two more classified documents were found at yet another storage place that were handed over uh, to justice. So that's an ongoing investigation. Um, And of course, the larger investigation of justice around January 6th and Trump's role in that. So those are the main ones, as well as several other personal cases um, regarding um, uh, kind of misconduct with different individuals. But um, so there's there's a lot swirling around Trump right now. I I will just note, however, that he's He's still um, very popular in the Republican Party. His his ratings have dipped a bit, but um, you know about two thirds of Republicans, if not more, still view him favorably, and he's still coming out uh, ahead in the polls with who people want to see run in twenty twenty four. So I would say it's these legal cases are important, but he's he's staying above the fray for the moment. And the result in Georgia didn't affect his popularity at all. I think we'll see if that takes a hit. Again, among, um, I would say, more elite or mainstream Republicans, absolutely. You know, uh, obviously, Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate, was strongly not only backed, but really elevated by Trump, uh, even to run initially. So I do think that is um, a bruising for him. But again, Trump will just flip this and say, well, this is why you need me personally on the ticket. And he won't really take the blame for individuals who he backed, but, um, you know, who who weren't him and who lost or underperformed. So um, again, I think the party is really going to be fracturing around this. And uh, a lot of voices want to see him out, but he still does carry you very strongly about a third of the base and another third who are kind of okay with him. And what about the constitution? What does it say about somebody who's accused and possibly by that stage uh, maybe convicted of various crimes? Can they run as president? Yeah, well, this is so interesting, Georgina, because it really would come down to um, the kind of court of public opinion at that point, because the constitution in most cases does not 
bar someone from running. There's a few exceptions for that, such as treason and that kind of thing, which is one reason why many are, are very fixated on January 6th. But for the most part, someone very, very well could run, even if they were indicted at that point. Um, and I think Trump is very well aware of that. I don't think, I think that would make it very difficult for him to actually get the nomination. I think that would maybe be the final straw, but technically he could still do it. And again, um, his narrative of being this this victim of the state, and uh, if he was doing that, you know, from uh, the image of, uh, you know, handcuffs or something like that would would probably just drive that narrative for him. Mm. Uh, And finally, his tax returns. Uh, I mean, he fought so hard to keep those out of the public domain, but they now actually have been submitted. Could this be a little like the way that the mafia were finally caught? Could his tax returns be the thing that brings him down? It's quite possible. And this was really notable. I mean, this has been that was a years long effort to get um, the tax returns um, uh, shown and seen. And and I would note even the Supreme Court did not um, support Trump in trying to suppress that ultimately. Um, Yeah, it's interesting because when the the calls for those started, that was before all these other investigations had launched. So it'd be interesting to see if they shed some new light on the investigations or open new things or if, uh, you know, with everything else that's emerged since then, if if they're, you know, kind of a bit of a nothing burger. But the fact that they are available, I think, will be very useful for attorneys and those involved in these other legal cases. Julie, thank you very much indeed. Julie Norman there. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The German Chancellor Olaf Schulz says the risk of Vladimir Putin using nuclear weapons as part of Russia's war in Ukraine has decreased in response to international pressure. Meanwhile, in a televised meeting on Wednesday, Mr Putin said the risk of a nuclear war was rising, but he insisted Russia had not gone mad and would not recklessly threaten to use such weapons. Google says North Korean government-backed hackers used the Seoul Halloween crush to distribute malware to users in South Korea. The malware was embedded in Microsoft Office documents, which were made to look like a government report on the tragedy that killed more than 150 people. Google says the hacking group targets South Korean users, North Korean defectors, policymakers, journalists and human rights activists. And the New York Times is bracing for a 24-hour walkout today by more than 1,000 journalists and other employees. It would be the first strike of its kind at the newspaper in more than 40 years. Employees say they're fed up with bargaining that's dragged on since their last contract expired in March last year. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, we head to Dakar in Senegal to join Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who's Monocle's senior correspondent. Faye, why are you all in Dakar? First of all, good morning, Georgina. And I have to apologize for my voice. You know, it's, you know, I think I lived the life very fully here in Dakar. Um, <laughs> it's, it's indeed a very special place. And the reason I'm here is that it was quite a special event, actually, for the country. So it's the first time that Chanel hosted uh, a fashion show uh, in Africa. But more specifically, it's it's about a car because, you know, usually some collections, they have resort collections, so they can be set in Tokyo or in Rio or any other city. But I think with Dakar, it's been a project that actually took three years uh, with a lot of meetings and encounters. And they make sure actually to speak actually with, with locals because Georgina is impressive. Here in Dakar, the culture scene is amazing. You know, you have, uh, you know, people like uh, the, the rapper, the pioneer rapper, Nix, uh, and to other designers as well. So it's been, and they will stay actually in the city in a way or another. From January next year, 
and they're opening an institute, you know, to help some uh, Senegalese entrepreneurial activities here in the city. So it's not that they're just coming here and then they're just uh, leaving the next day. So it's been quite a, an in-depth, actually, collection uh, with the collaboration between Chanel and the car. I say the city in general and its creatives. Mm. So as you say, I mean, deeper connections between the brand and the city, also between the brand, the city and Monocle. Absolutely, absolutely. And we uh, did a Monocle guide uh, for the car. And I have to say, it's a really fun guide. Uh, because, you know, if you're here, Georgina, you would love this. Uh, the, the amount of, of cool brands and shops like F Concept, which in fact, perhaps a little bit uh, after our chat, am I going, maybe I'll buy a Senegalese piece because it's vibrant, you know, and even Pharrell Williams, who was uh, here also for the show and for a series of talks that Monaco also helped to organize. He said, I mean, I've never seen this before. Uh, it, it, the audience as well, they were the stars. I mean, everyone really take fashion very seriously. It was not boring at all. It was the best people watching. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it is. It, it does sound amazing. And and actually, even my clothes felt a bit understated uh, at times as well. <laughs> and anybody that knows you will know that that's some admission. Um, you mentioned Pharrell Williams uh, and, and the series of talks. Monocle were involved in those and in fact hosted some of them yesterday. Tell us more. Yeah, so it was interesting to find out, you know, from uh, people like Pharrell, who's been collaborating with Chanel for years. I mean, he's really... Uh, very much into the brand. I mean, he appreciates uh, fashion in a very special way. But of course, the main talk there was this was the Metier d'Art collection. For those that don't, that don't know the Metier d'Art collection, it's basically a collection showcasing Chanel's 11 ateliers, you know, from hat makers to embroidery. And it was nice, actually, in the series of talks yesterday, after, you know, they were show, showcasing some embroidery, some beautiful embroidery, Georgina. It, it, it is definitely a, a thing of beauty. And, and, you know, and if you want to know, I mean, it was not just Pharrell. I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in the fashion show, Naomi Campbell were here, among many other names. It was, uh, besides the locals, which I think for me was the best, there was also some, you know, may I say, international talent as well. Mm, and I believe you recognise one of your favourite Brazilian models. Absolutely. Well, I have to be honest, I don't usually ask people for a picture. I'm a bit shy, but you know, I love her so much. Laís Ibeiro, one of the best uh, Brazilian models. She did very well. She was a uh, Victoria's Secret girl, but now she does other things as well. So yeah, I did take a picture. And it's interesting because she and her husband, who is the son of French tennis player Yannick Noah, they actually come to to, to Senegal quite often. They they, they help in a, in a and a project about kids playing basketball, which is quite uh, big here uh, in Senegal. I, I didn't try myself yet, uh, Georgina. I, I can tell you. I don't, I don't have the strength for it today. Uh, just, just tell us a little bit about the mood and the other things you've been doing around this, of restaurants and parties and so on. It is super exciting. Yeah, the party was in a beautiful rooftop close to Independence Square uh, here in the car. And as I said, there's an exciting mood. And, and even restaurant-wise, there's a restaurant by the beach called Le Lagoon, uh, one and it, it felt very kitschy. It felt like you were in the set of a James Bond film in the sixties, but it's amazing. You know, there was kind of a old school glamour uh, about it as well. And yes, it was literally by the sea. And I have to say, Georgina, surf culture is quite big uh, in the car as well. If today, if I have time, I want to go to one of their uh, kind of uh, surf beach clubs uh, as well. And you know, it's a big thing. And they they also have uh, you know brands. Uh, with swimwear and, and other things. So, yes, you can see a bus in the city. It's a city that, you know, it, it's exciting, a city that is growing and giving opportunities to other people as well.
Fernando, thank you very much indeed. I am certainly going to be visiting your Instagram to see all those fabulous pictures. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco and he is in Dhaka in Senegal with the rest of our Monocle team. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. here in London, 8.36 in Zurich. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me from Paris is Agnès Poirier, who is a journalist and the author of Notre Dame, The Soul of France. Good morning to you, Agnès. Good morning. Uh, Now, the term energetic sobriety frankly scares me. What (laughs) What does it mean and how is it affecting France? Well, I love I love that uh, formulation, that expression. Um, I find it quite poetical myself. Look, um, President Macron came up with that expression on his uh, address on Bastille Day, 14th of July. And it looks as if the French actually listened to him because we got uh, yesterday uh, the figures showing from the RT. So the RT is the French Network for Electricity Transport. And they say that uh, last week uh, the French reduced their consumption of electricity by 8.3 percent, and and you know this is very serious. Not because it was particularly uh, particularly warm uh, in France last week. Actually, the temperatures have uh, been dropping quite considerably. It's zero degrees this morning in Paris, uh, and it's really compared to the same week um, in the period 2014 to 2019 and they say that actually that uh, that reduction that decrease in electricity consumption it's something that they've seen um they've seen growing uh, as it were since um august and I must say, I mean, France has been, you know, talking about, and the French government has been talking about that um, effort that we ought almost be doing um, uh, to save energy uh, for months. And there's, if you if you live in France, if you travel through France, there's this ubiquitous information campaign. You can't miss it. It's everywhere, you know, on radio, on ads in the streets, on train stations, in the metro in Paris, on TV, in all newspapers. Every day you're told about, um, you're given tips on how best to save energy, not only electricity. And there's this app which I downloaded last week and I'm not I was not the only one um, one million French people uh, downloaded last week and it's called EcoWatt um, and it tells you in real time the consumption of electricity near you and it sends you notifications because the idea of course it's to avoid future power cuts so they tell you they send you a notification saying oh well if I were you 
um, I would do this and this and this because uh, we will uh, have a power cut if we're not all making an effort. Um, and it's extremely well done. I mean, I would urge anyone to to look at it uh, because it's filled with information about electricity consumption in France according to where you are, but also it gives you a lot of tips. Mm. Um, and of course, everyone, pharmacies included, uh, are quite worried about those power cuts because obviously some um, key industrial sites, hospital clinics uh, are part of, you know, a priority list, but pharmacies are not. And of course, they store a lot of medical equipment and medical stocks like vaccines. And if there are power cuts, they will have to throw a lot of uh, medicines. So uh, the government is actually looking at how best to save some of those 20,000 pharmacies from, from power cuts. And of course, this EcoWatt app not only reduces your electricity consumption, it would also ultimately reduce your bills. And that's something that French people, even though inflation is is one of the, the, the lowest, it means that French people still feel that keenly. Uh, there's a big uh, piece about how to lower the cost of Christmas. Oh, yes. So it's in Le Parisien and Le Parisien uh, has had a, a sort of poll from its readers saying, how do you um, say for, for Christmas, how are you going to do about it? And, uh, you know, the, uh, there are a lot of recommendations. For instance, for presents, uh, a lot of uh, French readers of Le Parisien say they will give secondhand clothes, toys, objects. Uh, they say that now it's uh, become acceptable because it's also environmentally friendly. Some are uh, hunting bargains and, and reduction codes on, online through influencers on Instagram. I had no idea. Some will buy their champagne directly from the producers. Um, some say forget about scallops for uh, Christmas dinner, just buy or even better cook fish pâté. And if you're inviting 20 people for Christmas dinner or lunch, well, ask for a little contrib contribution. There's an app for this. An app to charge your guests? <laughs> <laughs> yes. To, apparently it's very easy, you know. Um, uh, you just uh, ask them to, uh, uh, I mean, in, in one click, basically, you can just send 20 euros to your aunt or to, to your grandmother who, who will actually be cooking for you for Christmas. Gosh. <laughs> that's novel. Um, there is, of course, one village that's not going to need to do that. A very lucky village in Belgium. Yes, uh, the, uh, the that little town uh, in Belgium is called Olmen and it's near Antwerp. And 165 five inhabitants played together the Euro Million Lottery and they won. And it's the first time it happens. So imagine 165 inhabitants of Olmen are going to share 143 million euros. So that's um, apparently 870,000 euros each. That is to say 9,000 years of the minimum wage. So um, I know some people who are not going to have to buy secondhand presents for their family. Can you imagine being the one person in the village that wasn't part of the <laughs> consortium? No, I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to be thinking about those poor people. Agnes, thank you very much indeed. That is Agnes Poirier speaking to us from Paris. And this is The Globalist. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. 
To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. It's time now to talk art with Ben Luke, the review editor at the art newspaper and host of its podcast. Ben, it's lovely to have you in the studio. Nice to be here. Uh, Very cold to be here, though. I think it's minus two in London this morning. (laughs) Even the walk from the car to the studio, which was about... 10 seconds was freezing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, you're here now and you can warm up uh, and give us some cheery art news. Veronica Ryan has won the Turner Prize. Tell us more. It's great news, actually. Veronica Ryan, um, she took to the stage as she just won and was, was... punching the air and saying power, visibility. And visibility is a big thing for Veronica because she basically was in the wilderness for 20 years. No curator would look at her work. No, she didn't have a gallery. She was just there quietly making work out of rubbish, as she says. Things like tea bags, things like um, takeaway containers and so on. Still just plugging away, making her work when no one was really paying her any attention. And just in the last five years or so, that's all picked up. Suddenly, she's a Turner Prize winner and absolutely deserves. She makes wonderful work, incredibly materially rich work, work with these... um, with seeds and pods, which are very evocative. They they relate to her uh, Caribbean background. And then these wonderful crocheted um, bags that hold them. And, and she's probably most famous in London for the pieces that she did in Hackney, where she used these these fruit uh, stones to, to make these incredibly evocative points about for the Hackney Windrush Commission. So it was a really sort of a really powerful work, and it's great to see her awarded for it. Mm, just kind of looking at her detail, as you say, she's born in Montserrat. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, uh, her first landmark exhibition was back in 1985, uh, The Thin Black Line at the ICA, and that celebrated the work of black and Asian women artists. Uh, and she's done incredibly well. She was made an OBE yeah. in 2021. What's really interesting here is that she is the oldest person to ever win the Turner Prize. Yeah, it's, what's interesting is that the Turner Prize made a decision, and I actually was a bit, I questioned it a bit at the time, which was to, to get rid of this rule that it had that art, the artists in the Turner Prize had to be... Uh, under 50. And I was worried that it was going to turn into a Lifetime Achievement Award rather than awarding artists for a body of work over a year, which it is. And actually, I've been completely proven wrong. You know, there have been lots of uh, winners who are younger than 50 and and also people like Veronica who at last have been rewarded and are making their best work now. Yeah. And so the fact that she's won it at this age, is it's not a Lifetime Achievement Award. She is absolutely making fantastic work and it's just great to see that. I mean, the Turner Prize is often very controversial, <laughs> isn't it? But I th- don't think this one is going to ruffle feathers. No, I don't. And I think it shows in a way that the original aim of the Turner Prize has been achieved, which is to bring contemporary art to public attention. And I think we've just got a much more mature relationship with contemporary art than perhaps we had when the Turner Prize was getting massive column inches and front page headlines. We Contemporary art is much more part of the cultural fabric than it was when the prize was founded in the 1980s. Mm. Uh, let's go now, again, looking at things in a historical context, uh, we'll look at the Welcome Collection. Now, this is, of course, the fabulous collection just by Euston Square. Mm. Um, it's been accused of cultural vandalism. Why is this? Well, this is really interesting. So um, on the 26th of November, the Welcome Collection issued a tweet thread and it caused a massive pile-on. But basically, it's doing what a lot of museums are doing and it's looking at, at its collections and saying, OK, where are the systemic biases here? And it said that the collection perpetuates a version of medical history that is based on racist, racist sexist and ableist themes, theories. Now, 
What happened then was that loads of people piled on, and I'm sure many of them, who have never been to the Welcome Collection, and said that it was, you know, classic tropes of today, cancel culture, that it was a woke interpretation. And it, the thing is, if you've been to the Welcome Collection, and I've been there many times over the years, you'll know that this Medicine Man display, which is about Henry Welcome, the founder of this collection, is deeply problematic. It, it contains objects that were acquired... Um, for uh, supposedly medical purposes, but were actually completely misunderstood by a 19th century and early 20th century kind of colonial figure. And what the Welcome Collection is saying is that we tried actually to do stuff with this collection. We've we presented it in this way. We've asked contemporary artists to come and reinterpret it, to kind of add some nuance to it. But still, it's perpetuating these theories. Mm. So what they what they're actually going to do is redisplay it, and. The way that the the way that you, if you were to read just some of the Twitter response, it's it's as if they're closing the museum down. No, they're just re, redisplaying it. They're redisplaying it from the point of view of the twenty first century. They're not going to cancel Henry Welcome, but what they are going to do is reinterpret this collection that he built in the the contemporary values that we have today, but also just with the, the hindsight that we have about that period of history and about who was collecting what in that period and, and showing that actually a lot of bias was involved in that. And a lot of, you know, a lot of white men were going abroad, collecting things they didn't understand and showing them and and, and um, glorifying themselves in the process and, and welcome saying, well, let, let's question that a bit. Yeah, which is fabulous because, as they say, the result was a collection that told a global story of health and medicine in which disabled people, black people, Indigenous people and people of colour were exoticised, marginalised and exploited or even missed out together and how wonderful that it's now being put back on display in a way that is inclusive. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see because I think one of the things is, is it's almost like a failure of, well, maybe it's a triumph or a failure of communications depending upon which way you see it. It's caused this pile on lots of misunderstandings at bay but we're all we're all looking now to see what the welcome does with it and I think, I think you know, when it does eventually go back on display this material, it'll be really Really, really interesting to see how they go about doing it. I'm really confident that they'll do it well because Melanie Keane, who's the director, who is one of the only black directors of a museum in London, by the way, and uh, she's very smart. I think she'll, I think she'll present it in a really interesting way. So I'm really intrigued to see how the Welcome develops. Yeah, and top tip for Londoners: if you go up to the very top floor of the Welcome Trust, there's really nice little kind of restaurant workspace, which is absolutely it's a I... wonderful library as well. Yes. That's one of the great libraries in London. Go and sit in in, in, in that tranquil environment, pick off a, a book from the shelf and have a wonder, wonderful time. It's a, it's a really, really wonderful place to, to immerse oneself. And it's I open, find. it's not closed like some people on Twitter think it is. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And particularly if you're sort of with somebody at University College Hospital, it's a nice place to slip out from a death watch. Gosh, that was a bit morbid, wasn't it? <laughs> Let me continue. <laughs> uh, we're talking about uh, George Osborne now. Now, of mm. course, he was the former Chancellor of the Exchequer here in Britain. Mm. Uh, He's now the chair of the British Museum and apparently he's been in secret talks with the Greek government about the return of the Parthenon marbles. Yes, so um, this is a scoop from Tarnea, which is the um, Greek newspaper, in which they've revealed that there, there were these secret talks going on over 13 months between George Osborne and members of the Greek government, including the Prime Minister. Um, and... Of course, this is a, a thorny issue. It's, it's existed for many, many years. The, the backstory, very quickly, 
in the 19th century, Elgin, Lord Elgin, came back from Greece with lots of the Parthenon marbles. They've been called Elgin, the Elgin marbles, which is a deeply problematic term ever since. And since the, over the last two generations or so, there's been a big dispute between the British and Greek governments about this. It, it always seemed that it was impossible. We, the British Museum cannot get rid of anything by law. So if that was to change... The law would have to change. But really interestingly, in this Tanea piece, there's always this sort of hints of diplomatic language that might be a route out of the Ampas. So it's going to be really intriguing to see again how how that develops, because there are ways that you can say it can go back to Greece without saying that Greek the Greeks own it so that you don't have to go through an act of parliament and so on. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. A story definitely to be watched. Ben Luke, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. The Blue Chair Film Festival may be the only film festival in the world that takes place in a city with no movie theatres, Luang Prabang in northern Laos. The country itself has just four cinemas nationwide. Still, the event, which kicks off today and runs until the 11th, draws international crowds and has plenty to screen. Monocle's Naomi Zhu Elegance spoke with the executive director, Sean Chadwell, to hear more. Our underlying mission has always been to support the nascent Lao film industry. And there are a lot of young, really talented, really energetic Lao filmmakers at work without a lot of resources and support. And so actually under the iceberg of the festival, the work that we do year round is in raising money to disperse through our grant program for Lao filmmakers, the Lao Filmmakers Fund. Um, we run workshops. We have you know, for four years, we hosted regional labs with filmmakers from across the region with Tribeca Film Institute. So that's the other work that we're, we're engaging in year round. One of the things that's really important to us during the festival is getting as many Lao filmmakers here in Luang Prabang as possible. Our event is, we like to describe it as high production value, low stakes. And it's also an end-of-circuit festival. Those things together mean that we're selecting films from all over Southeast Asia that have, in general, they've made their premieres in Toronto and Cannes and been in, you know, Locarno and all over the world and Tokyo. And they're coming back home to Southeast Asia. Many of them have distribution deals all over the world already, but rarely in Laos. And so we have this advantage where we can produce this live international event. We can still get the rights to screen these movies in Laos because the deals haven't been made here yet. And those filmmakers, they come home and they come into an environment like ours, which is, I don't know if you know Luang Prabang, but it's, it's very, I mean, it's a lovely place to convene with friends and network and drink beer Lao, plan your next project. And so we, we quickly realized that that atmosphere we were creating by bringing all of these international peers to Luang Prabang, along with Lao filmmakers, was great for the domestic industry because they were building networks, they were making connections, they were learning from their peers. And that's something that we took it up another level when we introduced the Talent Lab in 2016 and became really intentional about that. But even, even now, the, the way we structure events around the festival is to give the, is to give artists a lot of time to, to just hang out, to meet audiences, to meet each other, to, to enjoy a, a beer on a terrace overlooking the Mekong River. So that's the atmosphere we try to create here. 
What's on the schedule for this year's festival? We have two features that have sort of come home to roost that both in their very earliest stages were at our talent lab in 2016. One of those is uh, Martika Ramirez Escobar's film, Leonor Will Never Die from the Philippines. And I can't remember which festival it premiered at off the top of my head, but it's been at Sundance. It's been everywhere. People love it. It's an amazing movie. And she and her producer, Monster Jimenez, have told us that without LPFF, the film wouldn't exist. They met at, at, at the Talent Lab. The, the project took off from there. So we're really proud to be bringing that film back. She'll be here. Monster will be here. So that's going to be lovely. I can't wait. Another one is the Cambodian film by Kavich Neon called White Building, which had its premiere at Cannes. And he was also here the same year as Martika in the Talent Lab. And so for us, this is really exciting. I mean, you know, it's, it's also kind of a reminder for people that films take a long time in development and a long time to produce. So that was six years ago. And we're, we're welcoming them back now as award-winning, as internationally acclaimed films. Those are things I'm really excited about. We also have new Lao films this year. Despite the pandemic, there was work going on. We've got a film called Shadow. That's an entirely domestic production. And there's another called Absence of Sound, which is, we'll have the, we'll have the world premiere of The Absence of Sound. It was a film produced here in Luang Prabang. And that's going to be a great big event with a lot of, I mean, it's just going to, we're going to blow that out. It'll be a lot of fun. Since there are still no movie theaters in Luang Prabang, how does the local audience react when you have the festivals? Like, how do they participate and how do they feel about it? It's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, people, we do a lot of promotion around town. So we, we've had posters up for a little while. There's a lot of word of mouth. Facebook is, is a major sort of, what's the word, platform for getting messages out in Laos. So people know about it, there's buzz. Um, but then because we set up our main night venue right in the middle of the, the peninsular part of Luang Prabang, it's the middle of the UNESCO heritage center of downtown. Thousands of people are moving by that every day and they see the screen go up. And the screen is six meters by 12 meters. It's gigantic and people know, they see our iconic blue chair and they see the screen and they know there are going to be movies all weekend and they show up and we you know each each evening we start with some live music live performances and then the movies roll and people are there all night for that it's literally the age range is probably two to 95 and by and large people are you know otherwise they're watching movies on you know a smartphone and so just give them the big screen experience a lot of our local supporters, the hotels who provide rooms for our special guests, for example, restaurants who support us, they tell us that this is what they do it for, is to see people at the movies, right? I mean, it's this amazing, like, collective experience that otherwise isn't going to happen here. Sean Chadwell there speaking to Monocle's Naomi Sue Elegant. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands, and our studio manager Nora Hull with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. The briefing is live at midday in London and there's headlines and lots of music on the way. In Los Angeles tonight you can join uh, our bureau there for some cosy cheer from uh, uh, 1700 hours. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on the globe at the same time tomorrow.